Every person is unique and we all differ in our looks, but have you ever wondered how much do people differ on the inside? This is something surgeons are very familiar with. Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on how technologies are improving healthcare around the world. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and my guest today is Rafael Grossman, well-known in the digital health community as the VR surgeon. Rafael comes from Venezuela and has been practicing medicine for a few decades in the U.S. by now. We talked about three topics. The first half an hour about the technological advancements in surgery, from minimally invasive surgery to robotic-assisted surgery, followed by some questions about Rafael's passions towards digital technologies, telemedicine and VR. And in the end, we touched upon the national crisis currently happening in Venezuela and its effects on healthcare. If you like the discussion, do leave a rating or a review in iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you will be notified about the next episode automatically. I also included links to some of the older episodes of the podcast in the show notes with speakers Raphael and I mentioned in the discussion. The VR surgeon Shafi Ahmed, digital thought leader John Nosta and VR in medicine pioneers Walter Greenleaf and Albert Skiprizo. Enjoy the discussion. Rafael, your uh, great-grandfather was a doctor, your father was a surgeon, which enabled you to assist in your first surgery very early on in your medical studies. What was the main thing that attracted you to, to healthcare? I sometimes feel that doctors have a very idealistic um, idea about helping people before they enroll this in the studies, and uh, hardly later on they realize uh, how difficult the profession is, because it's a little bit unfriendly in the uh, work conditions sense, you know, the long working hours and stress and um, uh, burned out uh, symptoms and problems that have been uh, more widely announced lately. So what were your expectations when you were thinking about what to study? I'm one of eight kids, and I, I don't think I was directly encouraged to, to, to be a physician at any point. Uh, indirectly, probably, I, I probably had a lot of uh, a, a clues and cues to, to, to follow the steps. But again, I'm, I'm one of eight, and I'm the only one who went into, into medicine. Uh, it was later on my, on my uh, youth, uh, uh, getting into high school, when I started thinking about it more and more, or, or you know, early high school, I would say, and I don't know why. I think that uh, you know the, the the typical cliche people talk about, you know, wanting to help people, and and I I I, I do see myself as as a, as a, as a person of uh, of service. You know, I, I really like to help people, and uh, I am also uh, always interested in doing things with my hands, and uh, I am very pragmatic in a way. So. A, a number of things, you know, they, they, I always like, like uh, uh, tools and technology. And uh, so maybe uh, that combination of, um, of interests and specialty per se, you mentioned, you know, how difficult it is a career and how, how uh, sometimes uh, uh, what we thought of or dreamed of uh, it did not become a reality, you know, once we are there. And I've been, you know, a physician for for, for a few decades already, and uh, nothing is perfect. And uh, healthcare 
a career is, is very difficult and uh, there's a lot of sacrifice, but there is much more rewards than sacrifices and there's much more good than bad, I would say. That's very encouraging to hear. Before we continue to the topic of uh, surgery and how the profession is changing, I have another question that a five-year-old might ask. People differ a lot on the outside. What about on the inside? How different are we? You must know that as a surgeon. How different are organs with different people? Well, everyone has their pattern of uh, of uh, of uh, of order in inside. <laughs> Obviously, uh, in general, uh, you know, people uh, inside is very similar. The anatomy, at least grossly, you know, what we can see uh, with the bare eyes, is very similar. But at the same time, you know, there are always differences in uh, minute uh, individual or singular uh, characteristics that that uh, that uh, each person has, you know, the, the surface of, uh, of someone's liver or the surface of uh, someone's uh, intestines or the size or the length or, you know, uh, we're very unique. Has anything ever surprised you in terms of anatomy during surgery? Yeah, of course. You know, when, when you go there and when you've been doing surgery for so many years and, and seen so many uh, a, a different types of uh, anatomy, yeah, there have been, uh, you know, times when, when uh, uh, you know, when you look uh, and uh, the normal anatomy of a particular patient is, uh, is normal for that patient, but not for the rest of humanity, you know, someone has their organs flipped, you know, uh, on the other side or a, a, someone has a a very large, uh, a, let's say, a, a spleen or or uh, a, a very uh, large liver or pattern that is different to what you're uh, accustomed to, to see. Sometimes there are even more radical differences, you know, when, when you have people who might be externally, uh, let's say, uh, looking like a male uh, person and inside they have uh, some female organs or uh, patients who have uh, uh, sometimes... Uh, tumors inside that uh, are uh, um, residual uh, embryonic remnants of, of uh, so so you, you might see a little skeleton inside someone's uh, cyst in the pelvis or something you know there's always surprises do you share that with the patients if you notice any anomalies such as you mentioned that uh, you're basically operating on a male and then you uh, see the female characteristics in the um, in the organs Oh no! Uh, of course, you you share anything with the patient, anything and everything. Uh, you know, it's is the patient's uh, is the patient's body, and it's the the patient's self. So we have no right to uh, to not share uh, any information that we find with the patient. You know, is their own. It's like their own data. You know, is their own body. So, uh, and we also have the responsibility to obviously protect that uh, information. You know, it's just for the patient and for no one else. It's for the patient to to keep and to share for their thinking. We mentioned that the profession uh, is difficult in many aspects. So, how does your everyday uh, look like? Um, what? How different are the patients that you treat? And um, what was the longest uh, shift? that you went through, um, surgeons are uh, known for long working hours because you never know how long a surgery is going to last. You know, starting with the second part of the question, I think, you know, the, the longest shift, I, I don't even remember, you know, the, that, uh, but during training, you know, you work very, very long shifts. That, that has changed somewhat in the last few uh, 
you know, maybe several years uh, when I trained in the in the nineties, uh, you were done when you were done, and sometimes you were at the hospital for two, three days, and uh, and uh, so the the shift can be really, really uh, beyond uh, twenty four or forty eight hours sometimes, and sometimes the operations can go for for hours and hours and you know 10 15 hours is not very common that uh, that happens but it does happen especially during training things are changing for the better you know it's not uh, humanly safe for someone to keep their their, their abilities uh, working such uh, long shifts uh, nowadays you know I'm, uh, we still ha- work very long hours sometimes you know my, my shifts in here sometimes are are 24 28 hours you know we have a, a room and a bed and uh, we have facilities you know comfortable facilities where we can rest when we have the time to rest and some calls are are busier than other uh, sometimes uh, we sleep uh, a few hours intermittently in that in that time period. Sometimes we don't. Uh, usually we do. You know, we have uh, short breaks that we can take. Uh, uh, and you are tired, but you know, you, you are trained to do this, and and we're always uh, a, a conscious of uh, how much we can do and how much we can take. And we always have a backup system of help that can assist us if we need. Uh, it depends on what you're going to. Sometimes you're seeing. You know, you're doing paperwork. Sometimes you're you're taking phone calls. Sometimes we're taking care of an acute trauma patient. So it's, it's, it, it kind of varies. You know, my days go from from you know I could be on call or not on call. But when I'm not on call, I might be rounding on the patients who are admitted in the hospital. I might be in the operating room doing elective cases. I might be in the ICU caring for my own critical care patients that we care for. You know, I'm a general surgeon and uh, uh, my team uh, takes care of all the trauma and uh, mostly uh, all the uh, emergent surgical cases that come to this hospital, but also about a third or or maybe sometimes a half of what we do is elective surgery, is non-emergency surgery. So it's plant surgery. You know, we see patients in clinic in in the the office and uh, uh, they come with a problem and we plan to do the surgery. Uh, Let's say we do a a, a colon resection, you know, a resection of the bowel, or we do a hernia, or we do, uh, you know, things that are not uh, emergent or urgent to do. And, uh, you know, we plan to do those operations. And, and I do surgery in, in a sort of a traditionally thought as a, a old-fashioned way, you know, open surgery with bigger incisions. And uh, I also do a smaller incisions, uh, what we call the minimally invasive surgery, from doing them with the, the laparoscope, which are small uh, openings in the abdominal wall and we put a very thin instruments and a thin camera through it to, to the operation. Uh, I also do robotic assisted surgery, which is similar to laparoscopy, but you know, you're sitting at a distance uh, in the same operating room away from the patient and you are driving a, a sort of mechanical a, a, a electronic system, a, a so-called a robotic system. A, we are driving that system inside the patient. We are manipulating the instruments in the patient, but sitting at a distance from the patient. You know, there's always someone right next to the patient, and my assistant is sitting right next to the patient and helping right there as if we were doing regular surgery. But the actual surgeon, in this case myself or one of my partners, we are sitting in a console, almost like a, like a video game console, you know, 
uh, away a few few feet or a couple yards from the patient. Last year, a, a documentary came out on Netflix about the medical device technology and the uh, Da Vinci robots, uh, which are used for robot-assisted surgery, uh, got a lot of negative publicity because um, supposedly there's no uh, real... Um, guidelines on how long the training is supposed to be before doctors use them on patients. And uh, it turned out that some doctors actually use them on patients too quickly, which brought uh, unwanted complications. How long did you train uh, uh, on the robots before you decided to do the surgeries? And what's your view on this specific technology? Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. You know, uh, like any... Uh, innovative uh, um, element you you have to really learn to to integrate that into the regular practice and to to do that you need to integrate that into the regular training and then there's always this box or, or uh, of uh, how do you train you know the, the surgeons of today how do you train them in the old ways of surgery you know with open surgery and larger incisions and how do you train them with the latest techniques you know that are less invasive and uh, they have a number of benefits you know uh, in the same amount of time how do you do that training you know five years of surgery to learn everything that i learned uh, and then plus whatever has happened in the last 20 you know 25 years uh, uh, so that you can be competent in, in both ends of the spectrum so particularly i you know, I, my, my surgical training was from 94 to 2001. And uh, when I was training, robotic surgery was not even a specialty. We didn't have any robotic uh, 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 capabilities. You know, the robots were being developed back, back then. You know, this is something that comes from the military. But uh, in any case, laparoscopy was uh, uh, barely beginning to be used clinically in the, in the late 80s to, to early 90s. And I did train with laparoscopic techniques. And I was uh, sort of in the, uh, I had the benefit of, of uh, being trained very uh, traditionally in open techniques, but also the two last uh, thirds of my training uh, in laparoscopic techniques. And, and you're always training, you're always learning, they're always new tools there are always modifications to the older tools and uh, that's what happened with robotic surgery when i graduated as a surgeon uh, i i had the opportunity to do a a, a short fellowship in 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 uh, minimally invasive surgery and there i was exposed uh, on uh, the techniques of robotic surgery this was a, um, a short fellowship a uh, that lasted um, uh, about uh, four to five weeks, uh, six weeks. Uh, and um, it was uh, mostly learning uh, very advanced techniques in laparoscopy, but not operating on patients. It's uh, something that uh, is a program that was um, is, is from New York, in, in, in a hospital in New York. And this fellow uh, expert laparoscopic surgeon, he had this program called uh, uh, the 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 uh, top gun <laughs> technique uh, top gun program top gun like like in the aviation uh, military uh, uh, in the u.s uh, air force uh, so uh, I, there i was exposed to robotic surgery and then after that when i started uh, practicing here in, in maine by then uh, robotic surgery was becoming more of a common thing and uh, i really wanted to include this in our 
uh, offer uh, to patients here in Maine in this hospital. And I um, and another surgeon, a urologic surgeon and a cardiac surgeon, we convinced the board of the hospital to really get one of these devices, which was rather expensive, you know, $1.5 million approximately. But they saw they had the vision to uh, invest on this, and they did. And then I went through a, a, a training program, which uh, uh, included uh, something that is required by the company, uh, and uh, you know to familiarize yourself with the with the with the device, and uh, you do some working on on, on ani- animal models basically, and uh, then you go and you do some um, a, a observership with uh, some surgeons who are already expert in this uh, in these techniques, and then you do surgeries and you're being sponsored uh, or not sponsored by uh, a kind of watched uh, and guided by surgeons who are experts, you know, while you're operating. And then you have a number of cases that you have to do before you are sort of granted the uh, sort of the privileges to do robotic surgery. So now when I did this, obviously, uh, uh, this was all starting, you know, in the, in the early 2000s. And uh, now uh, there has been, a, a, because as you mentioned, a lot of concern about how the surgeons being trained. And, you know, someone might say, oh, I'm a robotic surgeon, but they, they really haven't gone through the specific a training for their particular institution. There are no universal uh, yet, no universal guidelines to how to train. There are some guidelines, but uh, there's nothing that it's uh, a, a, a specific uh, requirement that is universal. So it varies from place to place, and especially it varies from country to country. So it's very, very difficult for for uh, uh, to get standard uh, verification of who's qualified or who's not or how good qualifications do you have versus someone else from a different country so it's a real it's a real concern but it's being addressed and i think that people is realizing that um, you know obviously if you've never done minimally invasive surgery and you want to jump and do robotic surgery versus if you're an expert a laparoscopic surgeon and you want to jump into robotic surgery you know that that jump is much less uh, uh, difficult in a way uh, that transition is less complex than if you're someone who's never done minimally invasive surgery. So, uh, in your opinion, how many hours do you think a surgeon would need before operating on patients with a robotic surgery? And how many patients do you really need to operate on to really feel comfortable with uh, these new techniques? No, that's very difficult to say. you know, I, I really couldn't give you a number because it's not a matter of a number. It's a, it's a depending on your prior experience, depending on your skill, uh, depending on the type of operations that you're doing. Normally, you start with uh, operations that are very simple and then you build up. And like I said, you usually, uh, you know, depends on what you are practicing, which country, which hospital. In our hospital, you know, we have a pretty tight uh, system, you know, to grant privileges in robotic surgery. You have to do some company training. You have to do a lot of uh, a, a, a digital a sort of simulation training hours. You have to complete a number of modules. You have to then a uh, watched a, a number of surgeries then you are are being watched while while you do a number of surgeries and then finally uh, uh, you get your privileges to operate alone it really depends and and like i said you know someone who has never done minimally invasive surgery versus someone who has done you know hundreds and hundreds of cases in minimally invasive surgery might uh, take a, a much longer time 
Minimally invasive surgery is one of the great advances uh, in surgery because it allows uh, for procedures to be executed with smaller incisions and um, that prevents unnecessary tissue damage, which consequently shortens recovery. To which extent do you think surgery can be optimized even more? What's the next thing in line that you are kind of looking forward to when looking at the trends and improvements? You know, minimally invasive surgery is certainly the the, 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 na- <clears throat> the natural evolution of surgery. Uh, I think that uh, in regards to the surgery itself, uh, you know, lesser incisions and lesser tissue trauma is the is the the trend that we should always expect. You know, from from doing laparoscopic surgery with many little incisions to doing laparoscopic surgery with fewer incisions to doing laparoscopic surgery with just one incision to doing endoscopic surgery with no incisions, you know, where we go through the organs, for example, to operate, you know, there's something called NOTES, N-O-T-E-S, which is natural orifice, a transendoscopic surgery. Then you might think, you know, I'm I'm a very fan of technology, as you know, of exponential technologies, you know, being an exponential medicine faculty. I always think, you know, a robotic a technology is uh, is uh, definitely in the future of, of better surgery. Uh, now, what we call today robotic surgery is really not robotic. It's just uh, you know we are uh, doing a telesurgery. We are uh, uh, guiding these uh, uh, mechanical um, electronic uh, systems like the Da Vinci robot from a distance. You know this is certainly not a robot. Certainly not an autonomous uh, device. Uh, uh, by any means, uh, but there will be a time when we might have some autonomous devices and we'll have some uh, element of uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, systems uh, or algorithms uh, into the process of operating on a patient. And then, you know, I think that nanotechnology is something that uh, is certainly in the future, very, 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 very near future, where we would have uh, a nano devices maybe performing some type of, uh, of surgical uh, uh, procedures, biopsies or delivering medications or taking samples of tissue, for example. That is a very interesting, I think, and, and that's where we eventually will, will, will go. I have no doubt of that. But at the same time, you know, when we look at the future of surgery, I think that um, more and more we, we might need less and less surgery. You know, we'll have pathologies that will not be pathologies anymore because they'll be cured uh, in, in less invasive ways or maybe they will be prevented. You know, ideally, when you talk about, uh, you know, pharmacogenomics or when you talk about genomics and, and the manipulation of uh, g- genomic uh, a, a material in order to prevent disease or attack disease at a very early stage. So that's very interesting. And also in the sense of uh, how do you, you know, everything that happens around surgery, you know, a pain control, anxiety control, the evolution of anesthesia, you know, how we de- rely on drugs very heavily, you know, to, to uh, avoid pain or to prevent uh, pain from happening or to treat pain. Uh, you know, there are technologies like, uh, like a virtual reality, virtual and, and augmented and mixed reality, uh, especially virtual reality being used today successfully in the clinical setting uh, to 
to uh, treat pain, to treat anxiety. And there are very good studies that show that uh, uh, virtual reality uh, decreases the use of uh, uh, drugs in, in that, that perioperative uh, uh, period. Uh, very interesting stuff that is happening. Yeah, virtual reality has uh, uh, implications that are surprisingly effective in the clinical sense. I had uh, two interesting interviews on VR last year with uh, Walter Greenleaf from Stanford and um, Albert Skiprizo, and mostly they talked about the uh, use uh, for PTSD and symptoms like that, but also very interesting use cases uh, where uh, they prepared children before certain surgeries with VR, so they decreased anxiety, as you said. Absolutely. You know, they are, are figures with well, very well-renowned. There are many other names. You know, you have Brennan Spiegel at Cedar sinai who's one of the pioneers on, on VR uh, therapeutics. Uh, uh, you have, uh, you know, people like uh, Diana uh, um, uh, Doris uh, uh, also uh, in, in, in Europe. I mean, there's a lot of people in uh, VR uh, today is really one of those... Uh, Areas that it's exploding in a sense, you know, in order to, to, to you know, with the possibilities of, of not just, uh, you know, the potential, but, but they actually use in, thera- in therapy for patients. We'll come to VR and AR in just a second. I just have one more question regarding the surgery and the technologies uh, uh, for the procedures. A recent Medscape report uh, reported a little bit about the skepticism about using the Da Vinci robots for mastectomy. And uh, the the reason for the skepticism was that, for example, in minimal invasive surgery, in some cases, uh, a small incision is not big enough for the size of the tissue that needs to be removed. So uh, from that perspective, I'm kind of wondering where do you see the limits of uh, the procedures that are becoming less invasive? To which extent will we just have to stay with uh, uh, more invasive uh, approaches? You know, every technology, every tool we get, uh, uh, we need to, uh, to use it with, uh, with a sense of uh, responsibility. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the, the joy of uh, new technology indirect or, or sometimes direct uh, a, a stimulus by the market and by the the system where you work or the employer or or the actual individual uh, or the, even the patient you get uh, led in a, in the wrong direction i think that you know there are many tools to do the job and uh, a robotic surgery it's it's a technique that uses tools that are appropriate for certain instances uh, you know you see people doing very very small uh, um, surgical procedures you know that you could do you know in minutes uh, with very minimal cost and very minimal complication and and uh, very good outcomes and uh, can you do that with this with a robotic uh, device? Well, you can, but is it justified? You know, do you have benefits? Uh, are the are the advantages in every sense? You know, at the patient level, at the at the system level, the financial level, the societal level, uh, are the advantages is so high that you should do it that way or not? Uh, you could certainly do a mastectomy robotically is it worth are there certain types of mastectomies or procedures in the in the breast that might benefit from 
from a minimally invasive technique? Yes, absolutely. I'm not a breast surgeon, you know, subspecialized in breast surgery. Uh, I've never done a robotic uh, breast procedure. Um, I just limited myself to abdominal surgery in the case of robotic surgery. Uh, but even in the abdomen, you know, some people uh, do very small hernias, for example, with a robotic device. Is that justified? Uh, I also do advanced laparoscopic surgery, so I tend to a uh, for general surgery for the abdomen itself. Uh, I still feel, you know, there are many things that we do with the robotic devices. We, you know, not me, because I, I really feel very strongly about only using the tools that I need in order to get a better result than if I use other tools, like laparoscopic surgery, for example. I think that many of the things that we do in the abdomen for general surgery, general surgery speaking, we can do as good and cheaper uh, with the same benefits for the patient and for the system and for society and and uh, and cost-wise uh, with laparoscopic uh, techniques than with robotic techniques. This is a technique that was designed for uh, doing very, very uh, refined uh, movement, very uh, uh, specific locations, very hard-to-reach locations, you know, very high up in the abdomen in the in the heart area, in the low, low pelvic areas, you know, to do very small suturing, for example, very small dissection of tissue. That's what the robotic arms were designed for. And we are doing that, but we're also doing a lot of other things that might not need the robotic uh, device per se, at least not the robotic device as we know it today. You know, robotic devices are evolving tremendously. And, you know, for the last two decades or more, we've had basically one system in general surgery for 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 uh, robotic assisted surgery. And now I think this year is going to be very interesting because there are other devices that are coming up from from uh, you know from the UK, from Germany, from from other places where where robotic surgery is being a little bit uh, democratized. You know, we we talk about that that uh, you know uh, opening the access to robotic surgery uh, just because uh, the design of the devices is different and and also because of the the cost is much more. Uh, accessible yeah not uh, everything is for everything and uh, uh, as the technology and as the industry is progressing we're hardly discovering what the meaningful use cases are in the first place it's kind of similar as with the pharma industry where a lot of drugs are um, being repurposed so there's a huge uh, investigation area on if the existing medications could be used for any other uh, indications that they originally have. Uh, so now we're finally getting to your um, field of AR and VR, which is something that you're most uh, known for in the public. So most people know you by your passion for VR and AR. You're known as the Google Glass surgeon. Could you tell me a little bit on how your first life transmission of the surgery looked like? How did you decide for it? Uh, how did you prepare for it? Were you nervous? Yes, as you say, m most of uh, people relate me to to, uh, to Google Glass and, and head-mounted displays and VR and AR and uh, lately, uh, you know, Magic Leap and, 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 and sp a special computer. Uh, you know, I I've always been interested in technology. Uh, telemedicine was one of my first passions, you know, using technology in a smart way 
to connect and communicate better, you know, to improve healthcare, to improve surgical access. Uh, there's a lot of deficit in regards to the access to surgical care in the world. You know, we know the numbers, you know, billions of people, 5 billion people in the world are said not to have access to safe surgery and, and you don't have that many providers, you know. We would need uh, uh, probably 2.2 million surgeons in, and, uh, and specialists otherwise to, to, to treat all the surgeries that we, we need to do in order to benefit people. And we can't produce that. And, uh, you know, a technology, we use it smartly, can help us train uh, uh, those people, but also could uh, open up access to to the few experts out there uh, to to be available to to the rest of the world. So when um, so telemedicine is certainly one of those tools. And then uh, I did a TEDx talk um, uh, on the use of mobile and using an iPod Touch. You know, in two thousand and and ten, when when the iPhone four came out with FaceTime, and immediately thought, "Wow, this can revolutionize the way we we talk uh, and and communicate and connect." Having video calls in a mobile fashion from our smartphones, so we started doing that, and we used uh, the iPod Touch in order to set up a network of telehealth clinics uh, or telehealth uh, um, encounters. You know, uh, from ER to ER using an iPod Touch, and that was my first TEDx talk. And then I saw the potential of of uh, of uh, using TEDx as a platform to to the potential to preach a technology uh, to, to use technology in a smart way so uh, and then i i went to uh, um, future med which is what's called now exponential medicine is well a little, little different format part of singularity university and i uh, you know as you know became uh, years later a faculty for exponential medicine but my first encounter with uh, singularity university uh, uh, i saw one of the speakers was uh, Babak Parvis, who was one of the inventors of Google Glass. And once again, when I saw that Google Glass in action, you know, live in the in front of all of us, you know, about 80 people uh, at the NASA research facility there in, in, in Silicon Valley, uh, I said, wow, I had the same, ex- the same experience that when I saw FaceTime for the first time. Uh, I said, well, this can really revolutionize the way we connect uh, and we communicate. So a few months later, I got a device. And then I thought, you know, how do I, how do I improve uh, uh, how I teach? And uh, uh, would it be possible to just, uh, instead of my students being all hunched uh, behind me or, or, or trying to see what I'm doing uh, in the operating room, which is already very crowded, uh, could I have them sitting comfortably and uh, looking at the surgery, not from the perspective of a camera uh, situated uh, elsewhere in the room, in the operating room, but uh, from the perspective of my eyes, you know, with the Google Glass. So I did so. I got permission from the patient and the family and and the team, and I basically streamed the surgery from my perspective, or from the perspective of my right eye. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, live streaming audio and video to a couple of students sitting nearby uh, at a distance, and they were able to see the operation like they had never seen it before. They were seeing it from inside my head almost, and they were answering questions and asking questions. So really augmented the way they learn. And for me to do the surgery, I didn't do anything different in regards to surgery other than putting the Google Glass on. But I didn't have to really even think about that. It was just a matter of using that technology in a, in a, in a clever way, I guess, to, to connect me better with my students so that they could have a better learning experience. And then I, I wrote a little post on that and 
my friend John Nosta from Nosta Labs uh, asked me if he could write a story for Forbes, which is a he's a writer for Forbes, and and he did, and that went viral. And then the rest is a little bit of history because uh, people really uh, took a lot of interest in that encounter and the first time ever in the world in history that. Google Glass had been used to live stream an operation, and uh, and then from then, uh, you know, it's just all history. You know, I really think uh, Google Glass was the, uh, really the first step in regards to how to use head-mounted displays in a, in a clever fashion to improve not how we do surgery so much, but how we teach surgery, how we uh, enable surgery surgery to be learned in, a, in an easier, in a better way, in a more efficacious way, efficient way. Uh, you know, I always talk about Google Glass being like the Model T of uh, automobiles, you know. It, 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 it's not dead. It was just the first step. And Google Glass is still active in, in many industries, but especially in healthcare, to connect. It's a marvelous design and uh, it's still being used. The companies like Augmetics are using Google Glass platform in order to do a digital scribe to improve how we do clinics, how we connect with the electronic medical record and improve the patient experience. And uh, there are other devices much more powerful in a way. You have View 6, you know, that it's really like Google Glass on, on steroids a little bit. But then we evolve to better and better computers in our heads, you know. So do you still use Google Glass? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't use it in the clinical setting, but I use it in simulation and in, in training and education uh, uh, all the time. And every time I give a talk, you know, because as you know, I, I, I do keynotes, uh, speaker uh, speeches uh, all over the world. I always bring my Google Glass and, and give little demos and, and compare the Google Glass to something as uh, powerful as the ViewSix, for example, or the or now, you know, the VR or AR devices like HoloLens or Magic Leap, which is the latest uh, step in the, in the evolution of, of mixed reality devices. The surgery that you did the first time with Google Glass, that was streamed to basically your uh, students, right? Correct, correct. Because one of the things that I was kind of thinking was that, uh, for example, that if you used a novel technology like that and you if you streamed it to a broader audience or publicly, um, I was wondering, like, what could potentially happen if you got nervous because um, the surgery got complicated, you know, because surgeries are always a little bit unpredicted, uh, unpredictable. You can never know what you're going to get into. Absolutely, you know, and, and that's part of being, you know, confident and being a, uh, an experienced surgeon. You know, you you don't want to stream, you know, your first case or your first cases. You you you, you get to a level in your profession when you're very confident. Uh, it's like giving a, a public uh, talk, you know, a, a public speaker. You know, you 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 want to make sure you don't get nervous. You want to make you practice and you have a good result before you start uh, showing the world what you can do. Uh, also, you know, you got to keep uh, in mind, you know, every every country, every hospital, uh, uh, in a way, have their own regulation in regards to protecting patients' privacy. And you got to be mindful of that and you got to be respectful, obviously, of uh, of who can uh, watch the surgery or who can access the surgery streaming and make sure that the patient is agreeable to that. You know, some countries are are more difficult. In the U.S., it's very difficult, you know, to get a, a, a permission in a way to to perform 
a, a, that sort of live streaming of surgeries. It's not, it's not very common that we do it because the, the HIPAA uh, rules, uh, the regulations regarding patients' privacy are very strict and they go from, from, from hospital to hospital in a way. But, uh, you know, in other countries, you know, uh, you know, I have colleagues who have streamed surgeries publicly around the world and, you know, I could never do that and I've never even tried because, uh, uh, you know, it's, once I had the first uh, idea of uh, using Google Glass to stream operation to one person or to or to a million people, I think it's a matter of uh, a, a, the, the concept is there. So I thought I had the, the idea of doing it and I kind of proved the point. But then from then on, uh, it was there for the world to, to just uh, exponentially grow this. In the U.S., for me, it was very difficult to do that, and I never even tried because I knew that um, a streaming public operation would be impossible in the place where I where I work, for example. In other countries, it's much easier, and uh, you see how the experiences with head-mounted displays, streaming live surgery, have really exploded. And uh, you have many colleagues out there, uh, you know, all over the world. But but you know, the the name of my 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 good friend and. And and, uh, and and brother, you know, Shafi Ahmed, uh, 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 you know, he's done incredible things in regards to to uh, applying the same principle, but in a different setting. And, uh, you know, uh, he has streamed surgeries to, to hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, and that is, uh, you know, incredible. And again, it's showing the potential of technology to open up how we learn and how we teach uh, by the use of technology. We mentioned quite a few technologies, so Google Glass, VR, AR, Magic Leap. Can you explain a little bit um, how you see the evolution of all these and their different uh, purposes and usability? So how do they differ, just so we understand a little bit more on what are the differences? Yeah, I mean, I think Google Glass was certainly the first uh, sort of publicly available device. Very simple in design, very clever in design a marvel of design, if you ask me. And um, I don't think that one device substitutes the other. They just keep evolving and getting better. You know, you have a device like View6, for example, which is a computer in your head. It's like a computer and a smartphone, similar to Google Glass, but with uh, with many more features that make it sort of a, a, an evolved Google Glass. A, a, but then you have devices like um, Oculus or HTC, which are devices of created for entertainment, but you can use them for learning and for teaching. You have devices then like uh, HoloLens, for example, which is the the, the first uh, uh, augmented reality uh, holographic head-mounted displays, which is a computer in itself, and it was probably one of the first, or I think the first, commercially available a, a device for what we call spatial computing, you know, computing in the space by gestures, not limited to a hard surface, not limited to a 2D screen, but you are having your desktop in different spaces around you. So a HoloLens was uh, the first uh, a successful, I guess, a, a publicly available device for that. And then that evolved in a way to a newer device, which is the Magic Leap, which I've been very involved with uh, for, for a few months, which is is, is uh, similar. It's like an evolution of the HoloLens in a way. You know, it has many uh, features that are maybe improved uh, compared to HoloLens. Like what? Well, you know, for example, the, the design, the uh, the form of the device, the weight of the device. For me as a user, how I see the images in uh, the Magic Leap are in a way more 
crisp and more uh, integrated with the real surfaces that I am seeing through the glass of the device uh, than they are uh, with the uh, with the HoloLens. You know, the HoloLens it gives you incredible rendering of holograms of 3D floating structures. But I find the Magic Leap is almost a step forward in regards to how, what we call mixed reality, you know, how we integrate the digital renderings with the actual physical, uh, not virtual world. Is it too simplified to say that the resolution is better? And kind of the the simulation. Yeah, for 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 what I've seen as a user, and again the the, the numbers I I, I couldn't uh, I don't recall the specific technical numbers, but but I would say for what I've seen in the different applications that I've been exploring and that I've been working with different people doing applications, you know the resolution of the images uh, and the blending of those images with the real world are for me better than with the Hololens. But also it's lighter. It's a device that is easier to to wear for longer periods of time and experiment and play with. In your experience, how long does it take to get used to using these technologies in practice? Because uh, the first experience with the augmented reality is a little bit unusual. You know, you're seeing things that are not there. So that's kind of, it can be confusing if you're not used to it. Yeah, no, it, uh, you know, again, it depends on the person a lot, you know, your your how your vision is, how, uh, old you are, I think that that older people sometimes, they, 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 well, probably because of their their sights, you know, the, the vision uh, changes uh, are a little bit slower. But it's just a matter of usually minutes. Uh, I have not seen anyone who won't get it after a few explanations in one sitting. Uh, if someone has uh, glasses, sometimes it's hard to integrate the the, the device uh, into their sight uh, w- with the glasses on or without the glasses. But uh, it's really something that most people get very quickly within minutes. I bring them to my to my uh, talks, and uh, you know we do a lot of hands-on demonstrations and smaller sessions, uh, other than the, the big uh, keynote speeches. And 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 people within minutes are are there immediately seeing it. That's another feature of of Magic Leap that I like. It's much easier to to get adjusted to it and to manipulate the menus in a way in Magic Leap. Than it is in Hololens. Hololens takes a little bit longer to. There are certain gesture commands that are a standard that are a little bit slower to to for for, for most people to to get uh, and to be able to to manipulate and go to the step by using gestures than with the Magic Leap. You mentioned before that um, when you began exploring the practical use of digital technologies for healthcare improvement, one of the use cases was using the iPod Touch to extend the trauma center services. And uh, as you said, you um, developed uh, a network of uh, local doctors which were able to connect to you remotely. Um, And one of the things that I was wondering, first of all, is is that still... uh, working is that still used in practice so that network that new service yeah that, that's a great uh, question and a, and a topic of great uh, of great frustration for me because uh, you know i'm an employed sir, and uh, w- we do have a telehealth network and we developed it uh, up to um, 
18, I think, hospitals that we are connected with, uh, or 17 that we are connected with, uh, and this would be the 18th hospital here, uh, the base house hospital. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we, we, we worked very hard on this uh, to develop the program and to connect the cameras. And then when the mobile devices came and the, and the, and the platforms, we used that in a few of the centers. And, and, uh, like I said, I had a TEDx talk and then we even won an, an award uh, for the American College of Surgeons. But unfortunately, it, it takes much more than that. It takes, uh, like, again, any new technology, you really got to sync it through. You have to uh, uh, make sure that you have uh, the, current, the, the, the right protocols, uh, make sure you have the right education. You know, most of the times these things fail because uh, there is no uh, training to, uh, to train people in their use, but also to, to change the culture of how we connect and how we do normal, you know, additional things. And uh, uh, that, uh, in a way, affected the way this program uh, progressed and eventually survived. And we still have the network, but we barely use it, uh, unfortunately. Which is a, which is a thing. And uh, it's a time when uh, when most people is wanting to do telemedicine, and I'm pretty sure that we'll retake this because uh, this is the way healthcare is evolving. There is no way that you cannot use technologies. Like, like remote connectivity, like telemedicine today, because there are not enough providers to care for the number of patients that we have. I think that the idea was great. So, for example, you've got rural or remote doctors that perhaps uh, run across a case for a surgical intervention let's say once in a week, and then you can connect to that doctor via a telephone or a telemedical platform and assist him or advise him. So that's, that's a good idea. However, one question that kind of came up to my mind when I was thinking about this concept was that very quickly you run into the question of uh, how are you going to manage the demand? For example, if suddenly you've got 300 local doctors that are trying to reach out to you and uh, of course the money issue, how is that service going to be charged? Because very quickly you could become like a telecenter with rising demand for advice and you would run out of time uh, for your own patients. So there's a huge amount or a huge number of uh, questions and dilemmas and challenges that you need to think about before uh, a wider adoption of this kind of a, an idea. Well, absolutely. And, and I tell you, it's, I, I love this interview because you have the right uh, the questions and the right uh, ideas exactly what that's what happened exactly and that's what has happened for the last few decades you know and uh, but we finally are getting to the point where where everything is uh, lining up i think you know it's certainly the the regulatory framework uh, the reimbursing uh, framework the insurance framework has been adapting slowly to this kind of technologies and and today and, and it varies from country to country and from even from state to state here in the united states but there's been a lot of progress in regards to what can be reimbursed you know for this type of technology but the point is that you cannot guide the development based on the hurdles that you have because many of the hurdles are are just temporary most of them are temporary you know cost availability connectivity speeds infrastructure regulation all that is temporary that will improve and if the technology really indeed is going to improve the way we connect and communicate and the better 
uh, and provide better health care, then it's going to be eventually successful. So what's happening is that, yes, you think about how you're going to deal with it, but, you know, it's the same way that a telephone, you know, I hate calling it telemedicine because it's not telemedicine. It is just medicine. You can call me on the iPod Touch or on the screen or on the telephone, or you cannot call me at all. Or you can send me a letter or a telegram. <laughs> you tell me about the patient and the way we connect and communicate is going to affect how the decision making is is happening on the particular patient. Yes, you'll have to grow uh, systems and there are indeed now, uh, they call them bunkers, you know, quote unquote bunkers, where they have providers sitting in there on screens, just if you have a lot of demand that you have more than one provider and you might have 10 providers or 100 providers is no different than when you have 300 patients coming to your ER. You might have, you know, you, you might need 10 doctors in the ER or you might need uh, 50 or you might need just one or maybe just one re- general provider depending on the, on the demand of, of the services. But the point is that if we use the technology smartly, if you can connect with me by video and I can, uh, let's say, prevent that patient from traveling 200 miles to see me, even if I'm not charged, uh, I mean, even if I don't charge or don't bill or my system, my hospital, you know, I don't bill because I'm I'm employed, but, but someone will eventually bill services. But even if we don't do that, in the greater picture, we are saving that patient from driving two to four hours from uh, missing a day of work or day of school or spending gas or not being able to pick up the kid in school or, you know, in the greater picture, someone is saving money and someone is saving time and we're not wasting resources because then instead of me seeing this patient here now at the hospital, a patient that I didn't need to see, I prevented that and then maybe I get to be free to treat another patient who really needs me to see that patient. And the same way, maybe the patient has a need that surpasses what I can offer here. Maybe that patient needs to bypass me and go to a major, major center where they only do that particular type of uh, evaluation or treatment, you know. So it's about optimizing how we connect and communicate. We certainly have exciting times ahead. And I, one of the things that I find interesting is how important it is for society to develop as well before the adoption of technologies. There are use cases when technologies were already um, developed, but it seemed that the society wasn't really ready to use them yet. You know, they were before its time. That's what Shafi Ahmed said in the interview for this podcast um, about Google Glass. And it's kind of like the same with, with FaceTime. You know, when FaceTime time came out, it was simply too revolutionary to be used widely. It didn't, it, it wasn't adopted highly, but now we have a, a ton of um, apps that enable video conferencing and they're used. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's exactly right. And uh, again, there, there is a, there's a time for everything and a place for everything, certainly. But uh, I think that uh, we are living times where technology is going so fast, so exponential, you know, as we like to say at Exponential Medicine, uh, that uh, we sometimes don't know how to, how to, how to deal with, with the progress that we have, with the tools that we have. And that's why I'm always very, uh, very uh, emphatic in saying it is about the use of technology in a smart way, clever way. Technology, most of these technologies were created for play, for gaming, for entertainment. But then potentially, if you use them rightly, you can save a life or you can, you know, improve a life. 
So, uh, or you can uh, teach someone to improve a life or, or save a life. And, and uh, again, the, the, the technology is out there and will be always there and will always be better. It's up to us to become a little bit of uh, a, a dreamers and, uh, a, you know, thinking outside of the box and being true innovators to really disrupt the traditional ways of how we do things, uh, disrupt, but uh, creatively disrupt, <laughs> like uh, Eric Topol says, creatively disrupting systems that are outdated and that need to be uh, changed because nowadays the way it is, healthcare and medical education are in very, very poor state. Uh, and, uh, you know, all over the world, but even if you compare the U.S. to other industrialized countries, we are very far behind. And even if you compare the most, the, the best patients with the best health, the best countries with the best health systems in the world, they're still behind. If you look to the technology that we have available and how much better they could be if they use these technologies in a smart way, again, to connect and communicate better with providers, with patients, with relatives, uh, you know, is, 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 a, is, a, is a very, very, it, it, for me, it's just a fascinating uh, topic. Speaking of uh, different healthcare systems and different countries, you originally come from Venezuela, where you also began your medical studies. What brought you to the U.S. afterwards? Uh, yeah, yes, I'm from Venezuela originally. I, I, I lived there all my life. Uh, uh, med school, medical school. I was there for medical school. I then did uh, uh, my two years after medical school in order to get my license. You know, you do rural uh, service, rural practice. Right after med school, you went into rural area uh, to pay off your your social debt. You know, I I did that, and uh, and uh, uh, you know, it's fascinating to 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 be a doctor. Uh, next day right after you graduate and you're treating patients out there we have a very hands-on education and I'm, i'm very proud of the medical education I, i received in my country and it was all for free you know it was uh, the smart use of resources you know to to do the right thing for the people you know one of one of the one of the the examples of that and uh, but then i always wanted to 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 you know the later years become a surgeon and uh, and i knew that i could that i had to go somewhere else to get the best training possible to become a surgeon and and the united states was was my goal to do so and and i i did um i came to do research in chicago and then i i ended up in ann arbor michigan doing my residency for seven years and uh, and then i went back to my country and practiced uh, for for about three years but my country unfortunately was was a very different place uh, after seven or eight years of absence uh, and when i came back i i knew that we, we couldn't be there we couldn't Uh, have the rest of our lives there and build the future that we wanted for my kids, for our kids. So we came back to the United States and I've been here for, for 15 years now uh, doing that. But uh, it's a very different system, you know, and, and uh, obviously uh, every country has its own uh, history and, and beauty and ugliness and, uh, and uh, needs and, and, and problems and, uh, and governments and uh, it's very complex factors and you know the system is very very different it's uh, that, that's exactly like the next thing that I wanted to ask like uh, the healthcare situation in Venezuela at the moment is really really bad while you were studying uh, the system was still good uh, it uh, was known for availability of low or no cost uh, healthcare provided by the Venezuelan Institute of Social Security 
However, the system completely collapsed almost by 2015. And at the moment, even the Center for the Disease Control in the US recommends the travelers to avoid all non-essential travel to Venezuela due to the breakdown of the medical infrastructure in Venezuela because there's shortages of water, electricity, medical supplies. Um, there's reports of uh, violence of patients because they're um, unsatisfied when they come into the hospital and there's no supplies. So it's a really, really terrible situation. How do you observe all the things that are happening at the moment? Well, with a great uh, degree of sadness and uh, and uh, and worry, because uh, you know my whole family is there and my wife's family is there, and uh, you know I'm 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 an observer, but I'm a very active observer because uh, you know I, I I follow the news and you know I connect with my family thanks to technology, you know, with video and audio every time we can, and uh, it, you know it's just a, a very hard. Uh, situation to to watch because i i grew up in in a marvelous country you know like like any country nowhere is perfect but it was very very good place to to live a life and uh you know it, it was proved that way after many decades of of democracy and yeah there was uh problems there were problems and it was but, but there was a very wide very developed middle class uh, uh, with uh, uh, yes, some 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 uh, obviously corruption problems. Uh, 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 many people who didn't have access to 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 benefits. Uh, many people who had a lot of benefits. Uh, uh, you know, there were always extremes, but but uh, it was a place where where the middle class and and the services and despite corruption and 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 and, and other problems, uh, the wealth was such that. Uh, uh, and there was some uh, progress and some good thinking to develop services like free education, like free healthcare, like infrastructure, tourism, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly that in the last 20 years basically collapsed, uh, uh, given the bad decisions and, and some leaders. And uh, now we are, it's not that we have bad healthcare now, uh, uh, that our country is not what you could call a country and it's completely dysfunctional in every aspect of normal civilized life that you can think of uh, every banking uh, food supply water electricity healthcare there is no normalcy in venezuela at this time it is it, it, it's to the level of or, or even worse than a country in 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 in, in deeper war because um, there is no very specific cost to it. You know, it's not like violence and war and you can explain everything because of the war. It's just a very, very complex situation, but to a level where it's humanitarianly uh, 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 shameful. Are you in contact with any of your colleagues from the medical school, like to get their perspective as well? Because uh, uh, I was... Um, one of the things that happened in February was even that the United States tried to send some humanitarian aid and medical supplies to Venezuela uh, via the Colombian border, but the president said that this was the ploy to humiliate the country, so the the aid actually didn't reach the country. So it really is bad. Oh yeah, no, it's um yeah, it's it's an ongoing problem as we speak, and uh, yes, I do have uh, I'm in contact with. Uh, colleagues of mine uh, who are in or outside of the country and and uh, it's a situation that is very very uh, there and 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 uh, and problematic because you know you have you know in one side of the river 
tons of supplies. And on the other side of the river, military who are not preventing those supplies for political reasons to help people who are really literally dying of hunger of this. And, and it's, it's a very shameful situation, unfortunately. It's, it's a terrible topic uh, to, to end the discussion with. So I'm probably going to kind of edit this so this goes somewhere in the middle of a discussion. Uh, and <laughs> I'm going to end this uh, with uh, a question on uh, what are you currently uh, most excited about uh, in the technological sense in digital health? You mentioned Magical Leap. Is there anything else that you could add that... Uh, you are exploring heavily going back to the other topics so that you can sort of end it in a good note mm -hmm. uh, you know i think that uh, uh, the problems that venezuela for example is having today and representing uh, to my view and to many people's uh, views you know that the lowest that you can be in regards to, to a society, a, a development of a society in the year 2019 in the, in the, in the, in the planet, on planet Earth. You know, I think that, you know, it's an example of how bad decisions give you bad consequences. And I think that, you know, we have the tools today to recover from. You know, Venezuela is a very special place because they have a lot of natural resources and human resources in or outside of the country for the human resources because many people have left, have migrated. But if we use technology in a smart way to accelerate how that situation can revert using telemedicine or telecommunications, you know, teleconferencing, using remote uh, uh, tools to educate people, to treat people. I think it's a, it, it's a perfect setting, you know, uh, to, to let them gain access to the, the wealth of knowledge, the wealth of um, resources that humanity has outside of Venezuela. It's a perfect example, you know, to, to utilize those, uh, those tools that we, we've been speaking about. Do you know, are there any uh, active initiatives in this uh, direction? Absolutely. And there have been a few for, for a few years fighting the system, especially telemedicine. You know, there are uh, telemedicine initiatives uh, to treat the underserved uh, populations within Venezuela, which is a, a fallacy because the whole country is underserved today. But uh, there is a very solid uh, programs and infrastructure in theory that could be deployed very easily. There, there are a lot of people in Venezuela, especially at the university or Central University of Venezuela, where I train, uh, which are still there and they're fighting the system and they're, they're creating content, educational content uh, to be uh, 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 transmitted by, by radio, by TV, uh, to teach people about, uh, you know, basic uh, healthcare prevention or, or, or treatment. Uh, so the, the, there, there is a lot of uh, potential to, to, to use technology and, and revert this, this the grave problem. So Shafi Ahmed is uh, going to tackle the Bolivian healthcare system. Maybe Venezuela can be your field for, for broader innovation and improvement. Absolutely. I, I, I don't even want to limit myself to Venezuela. I, I, feel my, I see myself, you know, I'm a proud Venezuelan, but I'm also a citizen of the, of the world. You know, I want to say that, that I think that, that we should have no borders. We should just have one. We're all in the same planet. That's my, my country. <laughs> to wrap up, besides Magic Leap, what else are you excited about in digital health? What else are you actively exploring at the moment? 
the thing that I'm spending more time is, is a spatial computing, you know, devices like Magic Leap and, and HoloLens, especially Magic Leap. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about um, artificial intelligence and deep learning algorithms, how they can integrate into mixed reality, how they can integrate, you know, when we think about, uh, in, in, you know, avatars or chatbot avatars that are, uh, in a way, uh, quote-unquote, intelligent, and they can uh, guide us. I think that's another way to to improve on the gap between a, a, a offer and demand of, of healthcare services and education. Uh, you could have uh, digital renderings of, of humans, uh, uh, that are somewhat smart to keep a conversation and to guide a patient in regards to healthcare um, uh, advice or, or recommendations. I think that that's a that's a field that is going to to explode uh, very 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 soon. Uh, using AI and deep learning systems to to improve uh, healthcare decisions, uh, improve. Um, the way we uh, uh, we tackle healthcare, you know, specialties like dermatology or pathology or radiology that are really going to evolve, and they are already evolving quickly, uh, and uh, in a way uh, being morphed into something different because of how much better AI systems can can do certain tasks within those specialties. I think that's uh, that's a uh, uh, you know, a, a great passion on mine, and and the other thing is a uh, uh, brain computer interfaces. I I really think that uh, enhancing uh, human capabilities by the way of technology is is fascinating, and uh, you know, there's so much uh, these days in regards to uh, connecting uh, hardware and software uh, to the human brain in a way that allow us to uh, uh, expand our capabilities uh, to, uh, for example, drive a, a device with just our thoughts. Uh, that to me is, is fascinating. You know, being a surgeon, I'm always into uh, uh, touchless or wireless. And uh, what better than mind-controlled <laughs> devices than that? So that that's uh, something that I've been uh, also very interested in in the last uh, couple of years. This was the 32nd episode of Faces of Digital Health. Stay tuned to do leave a rating or a review in iTunes so other listeners interested in healthcare will find the show as well. You can also find Faces of Digital Health on Facebook or follow me on Twitter under at Z-A-J-C-T-J-A-S-A. That's Z-A-J-C-T-J-A-S-A.